I'm Dr. Leif Tapanilla from the Idaho Museum of Natural History, and I'm here with Peter Pruitt from Zoo Idaho, and this is The Nature of Idaho. Coming to you from the 1B, Bannock County that is, we're talking all about Idaho, its wild places and wild faces, the natural setting that makes Idaho an incredible place to live and be proud of. Today our guest is Bruce Finney. He's professor of biology at Idaho State University. We're talking today about the concept of the Anthropocene, the idea that we're living in a new geologic time, so different from the past that it's worth having its own name. Peter, Anthropocene, Anthropocene, we're going to figure this out. Yeah, it's the era of humans. And that's we, right. we do have quite an effect on the planet we live on. Many effects on, on our planet. Some of them may be very permanent. And you could imagine a geologist that landed on the planet two million years from now. Would they recognize our time period as being something different than everything that came before or since? Right. Um, Roman concrete might still be around. I think there might be a layer of plastic, too. <laughs> we'll, we'll dig into that literally uh, very, very soon. But, Peter, first, nature in the news? Right. Leaf, North America saw its first primates during the Eocene period starting about 56 million years ago. That's right. However, during the first wave, the fir that first wave went extinct about 34 million years ago during the Eocene Oligocene boundary. And what happened in North America, we became cooler and drier. And boom, primates are gone. No more primates. Several million years later, however, a mammal, the Igumuichashala. Easy for you to say. Shows up absolutely out of the clear blue sky. And they found this these fossils, basically a jawbone and some teeth in Nebraska during the 1960s. Okay. And since then, there's been some debate on whether or not this was an actual primate. And the biggest concern was primates went extinct. So they said. 34 million years ago. Right. And as they were looking into these jaws, they actually found some of the Igumuichashala jaw and teeth over in China. All right. And they were able to better categorize that as a primate. And, of course, now we've got this primate sitting in Nebraska when they're supposed to be extinct. And what they've kind of decided, they call it like the Lazarus effect. Yes. Where um, an, an animal or a species goes extinct, and then all of a sudden a, a sibling, a, a similar species, shows up out of the blue. Right. And what they're thinking is that the Iga, <laughs> Igamuichashala um, migrated actually over into North America you know, 25 million years before the Clovis people did. And oh. then it was, and, and the Igu, Igumu Wachashala was there for a sh very short period of time, and of course went extinct in this North America as well. So very interesting. So a primate that disappeared but didn't really came back, right? Only yeah. to disappear again. Somehow it was able to again that bearing barren ice bridge land bridge yep. area it was able to make it across and survive in North America for just a little bit. In Nebraska. Then, in Nebraska, of all places. Yeah. Huh. Well, we'll keep discovering more things as we dig up more fossils, of course, right? Right. That's very cool. Well, today's trivia deals with geologic time and this new idea. When did the Anthropocene get popularized as a new age? Our guest today, Bruce Finney, will return after the break, and we're going to learn a whole lot about the Anthropocene. Stay tuned. 
Hi, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Here at NPR, we try to reach all kinds of listeners. My name is Leo, and I'm eight years old. And we take feedback very seriously. I never hear much about nature or dinosaurs or things like that. So when Leo wrote us about our appalling lack of dinosaur coverage on All Things Considered, we knew we had to talk to him. Hi, Leo. Hi. I hear from your parents that... You want to be a paleontologist when you grow up, and now we've got one on the line for you. Okay. (laughs) Let me let you ask a question. How did dinosaurs grow to be so big? This is hard-hitting journalism, because these are the types of questions that keep paleontologists up at night. In public radio, we value our relationship with each and every one of our listeners. You listen to us, and we listen to you too. So keep our connection strong. Donate to this station right now. Here's how. You know who covers dinosaurs really well. The Nature of Idaho on KISU. Support NPR and KISU programs by visiting KISU.org and click donate. Hey, welcome back from the break. I want to welcome our guest today, Bruce Finney. He's professor of biology at Idaho State University. We're going to talk today about the geologic time scale and this new concept of the Anthropocene. Well, uh, you're a, a two-timer, two-timers club on Nature of Idaho, Bruce. Uh, can you remind folks that maybe missed the first time you were on uh, what it is that you do in the biology department? Well, I do a lot of different things, but one of the things I do is I study the history of the planet by looking at both lake and ocean sediment cores. And from cores, you can go back in time and just see how things change in the past, both in terms of things like climate and in other things about environment and fossils and all sorts of things like that. So it just adds a deeper perspective than what we know about the planet from just historical or other kinds of data. And I work on the relatively young part of the geological time scale, basically just the last 20 or 30,000 years is kind of where my focus has been. So just the very tip of the iceberg, so to speak, of geological time. Right. But within that, which still sounds to me like a lot of time, you've got 10,000 plus years to work with, you're looking at at sediment. So these are, they're, they're not rocks yet. They're still sediment that you can go to the bottom of a lake bed and pull a, a continuous, I guess you're not using a shovel, but you're using a coring device a, to pull a cylinder. A tube up. of mud. A tube of mud. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but there's tons of information, right? And it's almost like reading pages of the book. Exactly, uh, From yes. 10,000 years ago till today, right? Right. There's you, things like pollen grains, so you can learn about what plants were there and fossils of the different algae that lived in the lake and, and then all sorts of chemicals that tell us about what was climate was doing and what was happening in the watershed of the lake or the ocean. Right. And that gets you back a fair bit into deeper time. We wanted to talk today with you about this concept of anthropocene, anthropocene, however someone pronounces that lovely word. Could you tell us just what in general that term means even, and then what is it referring to? Yes. Well, it kind of translates into the age of humans. And so the idea is is that humans have been changing the planet quite a bit, and more and more as time, in recent times. And the idea is, have humans changed the planet so much that it's different now and it deserves its own geological, official geological time designation? That's the debate. It's not hasn't been decided yet. To place us within geologic time, right now, what were we living in and what might it change? You know, it might change to Anthropocene. What are we in now, technically? Right. The name of the geological epoch we're in right now is called the Holocene. And that started 11,700 years ago. And that was the, that marked the end of the last ice age when we went into our present interglacial climate. 
So when we look at geological time, with the Holocene basically being 11,000 years old, that's not very old in terms of geological time, correct? Correct, yes. A lot of the other geological time epochs, or there's a whole hierarchy of different categories, but most of those are on the order of millions of years in length. Right, and, and ones people would be familiar with. So we're talking about epics, which are relatively short, relatively short intervals of time, and they pile into periods, periods into eras and eras into eons, right? And so like periods that people know are the Jurassic period, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a famous dinosaur period and the right. Cretaceous mm -hmm. and so forth. And so the Holocene is the current one going back 11,000 years or so until today. Mm -hmm. And we might have this Anthropocene that we're in presently. So we have rocks around Pocatello. How would I know by pointing at one uh, or a geologist, how would they know what age that rock is and what to even call it? Geological time periods are based on the fossil record. So you would try to find some fossils in your rock and figure out. And then you, from that, you could figure out what age it is. And from there, you would pull out your hand to geological time scale and figure out where you, where you were in time. <laughs> and it would have some name like that, like Jurassic yeah, or Cretaceous. Exactly. How do we even think about Anthropocene? How recent is this as a... Not our trivia question, when did people like come up with this notion, mm -hmm. but what time frame are we even discussing here? Right. So that would be that's one of the things that needed to get decided in terms of the discussion and debate about whether we're in it, like when did it begin? And so there was some discussion back and forth on that. Like so basically when did the planet start to really change and where humans were the dominant force? And some people thought it was maybe the start of the industrial era would be a good time. So that'd be like the mid eighteen hundreds. But then people really zoned in on what they call the Great Acceleration, the time of the Great Acceleration. So that's the time when a lot of things really sharply increased in the rate of change, like temperature change and atmospheric carbon dioxide and a lot of bad chemicals being put into the environment from human activities. And so that time of when the Great Acceleration, when a lot of things really sharply increased is the early 1950s. So that was the time that's kind of been decided for, as the debate moves forward. In order for something to have a geologic time name, it should be global, right? It's not, it's not something you would only recognize in one country or one continent. You should be able to find evidence for it everywhere on the planet. Yeah, that's definitely one of the criteria. It has to have a pretty sharp time boundary, and then it has to be global in nature. And significant change and significant within, within change. that nature. You were talking about this great acceleration idea in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's hopefully straightforward to think about the Industrial Revolution as having a global signal, right? We start using fossil fuels for the mm -hmm. first time in a, a real way. Mm -hmm. And so that gets into the atmosphere and then can leave a signal in sediments around the planet, right? Yep. So that makes sense to me. What's really accelerating? Maybe go through that list that you had of features that were changing on the planet in the 1950s that could leave some kind of tangible record in, in your case, you're looking at lake sediments or marine sediments, that kind of record, or, or other kinds of records that we might have on the planet. Yes, well, the couple things I mentioned were atmospheric carbon dioxide. Another really huge marker is like, if you look at the history of population growth of the planet, that's the time when it really starts to take off towards our seven or eight billion people on the planet today. 
club pushing eight billion. Uh, let's see, like tropical forest loss, water use, the acidification of the ocean, cl some climate measures as well, energy use, um, and even one of the things even on the things that accelerated was like international tourism, like just people moving around the planet. That really started to increase in the 1950s, really at a fast clip. We've talked about that, I think, in, in other shows, the context of uh, human travel around the globe changes the distribution of organisms around the globe because we're very good at intentionally or unintentionally transplanting exotic species and, and, and mixing uh, animals and plants around the world, right? You're right. Yeah, there was an example just this year of some new invasive species in the Snake River that they're trying to really clamp down on. That's right. That's right. The Quagos, right? Yeah, and I and I also think too, you know, when we have these changes of eras, epochs, etc., we talk about there's always some mass extinction event, and we are experiencing beginnings of some significant extinctions across the globe, especially with invertebrates and some other species as well. Yeah, good point. Um, many of the other geological time boundaries are times of big extinction events where a lot of things went away and new things came in afterwards. And, um, and of course, that data is all from the fossil record in rocks. Um, the data now to document the um, extinctions are, you know, biologists out in the field making observations of things like that. So it's a little different data sets. But, but it could be argued that the rate of extinctions happening right now is comparable to some of the other major geological time boundaries. So uh, the idea of the Anthropocene has been around for a little while. We'll get into that. But how do you, Bruce, get involved in this storyline? In a very, very indirect way. So um, many years ago, I was invited to go to Japan uh, to give a talk, and I met a postdoc there. His name is Mick Kuei. And um, he, was in, he was really interested in me visiting them because I had been working on some papers documenting how climate change over the Pacific Ocean affected fish populations. And he had a site in a bay in Japan called Beppo Bay that had varv sediments and fish scales in it. And so varv sediments are like the tree rings of lake or ocean sediments. Varv means, what it literally means is a year. So there are very special rare places in the ocean where you can find sediments like that. So you can literally count layer by layer, year by year. You can see the annual layers and you can count back in time. So it means you can, not only do you have a very accurate time record of your core, but you also can actually sample things at very fine increments and look at things, how things changed on a year by year by year basis. And then the other thing cool about this core was that it preserved fish scales in it. Of the fish swimming over in the ocean above it, they shed their scales and they fall in. Things like anchovies. There's a few other sites like that that geologists had exploited, um, but they're very rare as well. So the idea was that you could – at that time, his idea was, oh, wow, we can count the fish scales going back in time and like very accurately look, look at how fish populations change over thousands of years. And so anyway, so then in – the decade or so after that, then he started to look in more fine detail at the changes in the in the core corresponding to the Anthropocene boundary, and he saw a lot of things really changing in the core, and so he decided to propose this site as a one of the golden spike sites as a potential place to define the the marker of the Anthropocene. So to get a geological epoch named, you have to um, show that there's these big changes, and then you have to 
decide on what time it is, and then you have to find one of these golden spike sites that best represents one place in the world where you can go to and point your finger, and that's when it all began. And so he put together a team of 40 different researchers to analyze 99 different things in this core <laughs> <laughs> to see how they changed going through the proposed time of the Anthropocene. Things like what? What were you looking at? Again, I'm thinking of just a plug of mud, as you describe it. Right. What all could you possibly see in that plug of mud? Well, some of the things relevant to this were things like plutonium and other thing, markers of human activity, Since, which makes sense since we're trying to define like a human time boundary or that's the discussion. Like so some of those markers, it makes so, sense to me that they would be of human origin. So uh, uh, tell us, uh, just to fill in the blank, so plutonium, you might find plutonium at a certain varv level at a certain year, and that's indicating what specifically? Large-scale nuclear testing of certain kinds of nuclear devices. Right, and were, only those would release plutonium into the atmosphere to land in those sediments, right? Exactly. So it dates very specifically yes. when those events uh -huh. took place. And then there were some other things that were, in the, that were measured were, were microplastics. That's maybe people have heard about that. Those are on the news. They're in there? Like, like, yep. Oh, wow. And then there's a bunch of other kind of nasty organic kind of compounds like PCBs and other things kind of human things like that. So those are, and then there's another thing called spheroidal carbonaceous particles. Those only come from human burning of fossil fuels. So when you see those in a sediment, you know humans were around. So how many golden spikes do we have? Is this the only site or are there others as we're talking about the Anthropocene? The site was accepted as one of the candidate sites as one of 12. So there were 12 different sites around the globe that were potential golden spike sites. And they had pretty good global distribution. Some were in the southern hemisphere. More were in the northern hemisphere. And they were in all sorts of different kinds of geological deposits. There was, um, the Anna, there was a site in an ice core in Antarctica. There was a place in a coral. You could measure changes in coral by finally sampling them. So there was a, the Great Barrier Coral Reef in, in Australia was one of the sites. A couple different other ocean sites, many lake sites. There was a peat bog, um, a speleothem, which is like a, uh, a carbonate um, stalactite kind of thing in a cave deposit that precipitates. So there was a lot of uh, 12 of these different sites with broad distribution and of all sorts of different kind of geological things. There's almost this competition that you're describing, right, of... Uh, 12 different places in the world, each with 40 researchers <laughs> studying everything they can about each of these, say, 12 sites. And each of them is, I don't know, sort of vying to be named the spot on Earth for the Golden Spike for the boundary of the Anthropocene. And so is it, does it feel like a competition? <laughs> A little bit, you know. I kind of look, all the so all those twelve sites had a uh, a peer reviewed paper published in a journal, in the same journal, just for continuity, and um, so you know, I'm sure everybody was looking at everybody else's yeah. paper and kind of saying, my site's better than yours. Well, or, what what are the what are the uh, the I mean, you you can lobby here, uh, lobby for the the Japanese example that you have. Why is your site that that you've spent time working on, why is it particularly better than, say, a cave site with a, a stalactite or a mm -hmm. peat bog? Or what are the pros for it? Mm -hmm. Well, it had because of the varves, yep. it had dating was really, really good on it. And then it just had really good 
um, clear boundaries of changes right in the early 50s of a lot of different things, multiple things. So it was really good that way. I think in total, having the 12 sites with global distribution, that was part. That would be part of the argument you would want to make for the Anthropocene, that it, it was a global thing like we talked right. about, not just something that was in one bay in Japan. Yeah, I guess for me, I, I wouldn't see it as a competition. I'm like, <laughs> you know, this is all data, so all 12 get the golden spike. Only but one gets the golden only spike. Only one though. gets the— well, right? I mean, with Willy Wonka, how many were there? Five golden tickets? <laughs> so why can't we have 12 golden spikes? I know we joke, but this is, yeah. I mean, this is uh, the Anthropocene. Mm-hmm. Right. Is, is, this is serious, you know? Yeah. But on the other hand, um, it's not really something to celebrate because no. we're basically talking about humans changing the planet in not a good direction. Right. So there's, so there's a little, little bit, it's, you know, I wouldn't, it's not something I wanted to jump up and down about and say, "Great, well, <laughs> Anthropocene, yay!" Are these things that are 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 permanent? So, for example, you know, you you might have a signal that is a, a radioactive signal, but radioactive elements decay over time and become not radioactive. So, are the features that you are seeing, you know, in your example or in examples elsewhere, are they long-lived examples that someone a hundred years from now could find exactly the same signal? Very good question. I think some of the radioactive things do have long half-lives, so they're going to persist for millions of years. Some things probably will go away. So there's a kind of a mixture of some things might not be as permanent as others, but I think some will be pretty permanent. Okay, so you might be able to define the base of it, of when it starts, when the Holocene ends and when the Anthropocene begins. Is there any hope someone in the future would be able to define the end of the Anthropocene? Is that even possible? And what, what, what would that even mean? I don't know. Another good question. Well, I mean, certain things of how much the planet is going to continue to change are within, you know, the hands of what humans decide to do in terms of like greenhouse gases and pollutants and other kinds of things like that as well. And then there are other like geological processes at play that, you know, make climate change and things change like, for example, the ice ages are known to be caused by changes in how, subtle changes in the orbit of the Earth. And so those are ongoing. So it's possible that, um, you know, there could be some natural things that could kind of cool the planet down if humans lessen their imprint a little bit. You know, I think the one thing that always gets me is when we look at the time scale of how quickly, in a sense, the Anthropocene and humans effects on the planet versus a lot of these other eras. And and like you say, we go back to the Ice Age. It wasn't like it was just a couple thousand years. There was cold periods, warming periods, cold periods. And so there was a lot of fluctuation within that age. Here, we're talking, you know, from basically 1950. And I, I still sit here and go, you know, are we going to see fluctuations? You know, what's it? What's what are we going to see? And it all gets down to a time scale. That's one of the most interesting things about the discussion about this. That like if we dis, if it is formalized, then we've like only been in it for seventy years, which would make it be the shortest one by far, <laughs> <laughs> it, with unknown trajectory into the future. Yeah. So I mean that that's definitely something that people are thinking about. I'm I'm still thinking about how if if someone gave me the task of defining where the Anthropocene begins, right? 
there's a lot of there's a lot of signals that you've already mentioned that that could be used. Uh, plastic being one of them, uh, maybe uh, mining operations. I can think of a, a lot of ways that that humans change their environment in such substantial ways. The the concrete that's left behind from roadways, for example, certainly stretches back. I'm curious when the first geologically significant um, human impact on the planet first occurs. Where do we have that? So this is stretching us back further from where we want to start the Anthropocene in, in you know, 1950. Mm. How far would we have to go back to recognize, other than human fossils, that humans are here and, and being agents on our planet? Well, just moving backwards in time, there's yeah. a lot of evidence of pretty serious like agriculture in places like China going back seven, even 7,000 years that were, was changing the landscape significantly. I think a lot of people that study um, the history of forest fires in North America, probably elsewhere, but I just know about North America, they think that humans were, were a cause of forest fire changes going way back in the Holocene. Yep. Um, there's a big debate about whether the extinction of megafauna at the end of the last ice age, such as like things like mammoths and things like that, what the, that's a lot of people think humans played a role in the extinction of some of those. So, uh, you know, and then further back, I'm sure there's other examples, but right. that's just a kind of a... But the idea that humans have, have impacted the record and maybe in smaller ways and then more recently in, in very significant uh, and obvious uh, ways has, has really accelerated uh, since the 50s? Yes. Yes. And some of those other things I talked about wouldn't necessarily fit the definition of being a uh, ep geological epoch because they were right. more localized changes. Even though humans were affecting the environment, they weren't, they weren't happening at the same time all around the globe. I want to touch on the idea of, uh, I, I think, I suspect that there were some motivations in creating the epic of the Anthropocene as a way to name uh, and give name to uh, uh, human-caused processes on our planet and make people very, very aware that you know what we do and the choices we make individually and collectively have that 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 they matter that they ha that they matter to our environment and have long-lasting effect. Do you see? Uh, the naming of the Anthropocene, and, and as this you know proceeds, and eventually somebody will define it uh, more formally, do you think it will have a desired effect of making people at least self-aware, more self-aware, and a, a language by which we can speak about how humans are important in our environment? Yeah, I th well, I do. I do think that would be one of the reasons that you might argue to to formalize it. It just might help humans be more aware of the impact they're having on the planet. And if you didn't do that, then it might, I kind of think about what like a news headline would be, like scientists decide that we're not in a new geological era because <laughs> we haven't really done that much. Um, so so just in terms of like awareness of the community to think about what we're doing and kind of how that's affecting the planet, I think, I think that would be one of the reasons I would say it's probably a good thing to... Well, I think even now, because we're having this discussion, and every any time that we can have a discussion on our us humans' effect on the planet, I think it's a good thing. And whether or not it takes us ten years or two years to get to 
the decision, we're still having this discussion. And I think that's the important part. Yeah. So uh, tell us, uh, we started the show with the trivia question on when the Anthropocene became at least popularized recently in, in the scientific world, enough to the point now where we're trying to actually formalize a definition for it. How far does that go back? Is this the trivia question? This answer? is your trivia question. <laughs> well, I think most people cite the year 2000 because there was a chapter called The Anthropocene in a book called The Future of Nature. And that paper was written by Crutzen and Stormer. And uh, I think that's when the term first kind of got out there and people started to use it in informal contexts. I mean, there's journals called The Anthropocene and there's books that have it in there, scientific books that have it in their title. So. It's definitely a term that's being used in, a, in an informal way. Very good. So this, and thank you, Bruce, for joining us today. This is a great first start of this discussion. And um, for everyone who's listening, if you want to learn more about Bruce's study with and on the Anthropocene, um, be patient. We're going to do a link on our Nature of Idaho website there on KISU. And please, when we get it up there, go out there and check it out. Thanks, Bruce. Thank You're you, welcome. Bruce. All right, this is fun. The Nature of Idaho receives support from listener contributions to KISU-FM. Shows are produced at Idaho State University with editing and production by Khalees Kendall and Jamin Anderson. Music is by Idaho's very own Sons of Bannock. Audio of this and all past episodes of The Nature of Idaho can be found at KISU.org from Spotify and other select podcast services. Send your thoughts and suggestions to noidkisu at isu.edu.